0: Yo, 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 what's going on guys coming to you live from my parents house. We got episode 38 of the Changavi show for those of you that are new here. Welcome in Uh, for those of you that are veterans, you know, the deal Changavi show. This is the legit show. Sorry for me messing with my microphone because it's, you know, I try to get that perfect angle. But for those of you that do know uh, the veterans that are here, the Changavi shows where we talk about the real shit, where I actually come to you with the legitimate research and history and things that I'm thinking about and actually give you guys a detailed analysis as to what's going on. For those of you that are new new here that's exactly what we do here on The Changavi Show is we analyze stuff, we go through stuff, and we talk about things in a civilized manner uh, with actual research, unlike the news. That's just kind of how it works. So what are we talking about today? Because, damn, there's not a lot going on in the news cycle right now, right? Obviously, you have... Russia and Ukraine. You got all these other things happening with, uh, you know, Brittany Griner and all of that. But I feel like I've touched a little bit on that. And I've talked a lot about that to an extreme where like, I don't feel like talking about serious stuff anymore. I was sitting here the last few weeks, because this episode took me a while to research. And I'm sitting here the last couple of weeks, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I don't want to talk about serious stuff anymore. I mean, it's like, or for a while, because it's just, it's mentally exhausting. You feel like shit after you research it. And then like, when you push the episode out, your friends are like, dude, you're not funny. Like, this is boring. Like, well, they're not like, it's boring. They're like, thanks for the information. But like, I don't get to see your personality. And like, I miss showing you guys my personality too, because when you're talking about gun control, it's kind of difficult to be funny. So that's why I was like, yo, Let's do an episode where I get to have some fun and I get to talk about something that I love personally, which is television. And for those of you that don't know, I love television. It's one of my favorite things to do in my free time is to watch TV shows, is to binge shows, is to, you know, make content about shows. Never have I ever Indian matchmaking just came out. So shout out to that. But anyway, um, I love TV. And so I thought, like, I wanted to, like, really dig in. And I had a couple questions in mind going into this episode as to, like, what is TV? Like, how did it become the big deal that it is today? How did we get to the streaming wars that we're at today? And what is the history of television here in America? I'm focusing on American history of television because uh, I I didn't do worldwide because that would take 10 hours. I don't have time to do a series. But I wanted to dig into what the television history of America was. So let's get into it tangents about television changavi show 38 here we go intro to television listen when you talk about television, we think of, when we think of the modern definition of television, we think of the same thing, right? We think of Netflix and Amazon Prime and the hundreds of thousands of titles that we get to scroll through uh, to find the perfect show or the perfect movie for whatever vibe you're feeling, right? If you're eating dinner, like, what show do you want to watch? Do you want to watch something serious? Do you want to watch a documentary? Do you want to watch a uh, a thriller? What do you want to watch? You have endless choice at your fingertips. But, I mean, as crazy as it is to think, like... 90 to 100 years ago like people didn't even have television this what the television wasn't a concept a hundred years ago which is kind of insane but I think some important statistics to keep in mind as to like how popular TV is in this country just for like everybody to know at one point in 1998 so this is you know not too far into the past 98.7 percent of households owned a television. This number has actually gone down because, you know, we have access to television episodes on our computer. We don't necessarily need cable and antennas anymore. So that number has come down to 87% here in 2022. But the fact is, 87% of households in America own a television. This affects everyone. These these things that we're talking about are, are related to everyone. And, um, and you're going to kind of see what I mean here in a little bit. But the thing is, like, we can agree, right? I, I want to sit here and make a ground rule with television. And I think I'm right when saying this, but I feel like there could be people that disagree with me. I think television right now is in a golden age. I think we've entered the second golden age. I think there were a few golden ages throughout television's history here in America. I think we're in another one. Um, I think we're at the point right now where streaming companies have endless amounts of money that they can dump into original productions and test out different stuff and diverse casts and provide other people different opportunities to like tell their authentic stories. We're at this like unique point of creativity where like streaming companies have all the power in the world to fund whatever projects they want. And so as a result, I think television has increased in popularity. I I ask my friends all the time. I'm like, what do you prefer? Do you prefer like watching a two hour movie or a 30 minute TV show that's 10 episodes long and you can take your time with the season and process what's going on and actually watch character development? Whereas in a two hour movie, everything feels so rushed and you got to sit in the same place at once. And a lot of people, I mean, with this Gen Z generation that we're in, like a lot of people don't have the attention span to sit through a two hour movie. Including myself. I'm including myself in that category. So as a result, I mean, I think we can firmly say that television is in a golden age because I think streaming companies know that our attention spans are lower and lower. And so as a result, they're funding shorter and shorter productions versus longer movies. But the content rise and the quality of content rise that we've seen when it comes to television is absolutely crazy. This is, I mean, this it's unprecedented what we've seen in the last 15 years in terms of the qu- amount of shows that we watch. And we're like, damn, that's really good. Oh, shit, that's good, too, right? Like, it, this thing is happening. But the thing is, TV wasn't always like that tv wasn't always like oh my god every show that i watch is probably like a six out of ten automatically just because of like you know it's funded by netflix or amazon or whatever right tv was something that like was very hit or miss especially to begin with and it was tough to get people on board uh tv was something that had to really evolve over time and it took quite a while to get to the streaming wars to get to the infinite amount of content that we have today so Let's start it from the beginning, as we always do on this show. What? How did we get to having this many, like, how did we get to in today's current society to have 87% of households own a TV, right? How did we get to that point? And the concept of television actually really came to life in 1927 when the machine itself was invented. It was invented, or the concept slash machine was invented back in 1927. It was invented by this guy by the name of Philo Farnsworth. He came up with it. Um, and that being said, like it was very far from like the modern flat screen that you watch, you know, NFL football on today. But it was still very impressive to like have a moving picture on a screen. The concept of that being in like a a room of a house was crazy at the time. The television set was not as portable as it became later on. It was more, uh, what's it called? It was a bigger, bulkier set. It took up a lot of space obviously it didn't uh, perform at its full capacity that we expect the television to perform at today. So it took a while for, it, it was still a while away from actually being a product that you could sit there and be like, oh, like this is going to go into homes across the country and like produce high quality images and content on streaming or not on streaming, but on uh, cable and so on so on and so forth. Um, and the thing is, the TV was invented right as the Great Depression hit so there wasn't or the invented yeah the tv was invented right as the or like really started to come into fashion as the great depression came in and so as a result there wasn't a lot of people that were like in demand to like buy a television because in the 1930s the, but the thing is in the 1930s there was still hold on my bad i lost my train of thought i i suck at this look so the it took a while for the television to like go into homes across the country. But there was still a heavy investment in trying to create a portable TV because in the 1930s, uh, people in this country were going through the Great Depression. There wasn't a lot of people that wanted to buy TVs, but there were a lot of companies that wanted to be the first to to create this product because I guess people saw the potential in it and saw that potentially every American household could own one of these. So every company wanted to be the first one to come up with the actual model. Um, and the Great Depression obviously you know, prohibited uh, a lot of success from the television happening just because people weren't looking to be entertained. There wasn't a lot of TV shows going on, a lot of programming. Hollywood hadn't necessarily taken off. People had bigger issues. People wanted to feed their families, and there wasn't really a need for entertainment at that point. Uh, so some of the first things to actually come on TV were like baseball games on a single track camera so what i mean by that is like you would see it would be like a pre-recorded baseball game on one camera so you would see like just the angle from like the pitcher throwing the ball and then like you just see the batter like run to like one base and you could like it was the same shot there was no instant replay none of that stuff so it was just one shot of a pre-recorded baseball game that they would play uh you know at whatever time but still though like the TV uh, TV was mostly owned by like upper middle class houses at this point. A lot of people still got their information from the radio. The radio was the predominant medium in America at this time. But a lot of what was prioritized on television wasn't, you know, necessarily baseball games. That was more so the entertainment side, but what was really prioritized at this point in the 1930s was the news. And the news was what dominated the early airwaves in America because most People didn't necessarily like what most people, when they thought of entertainment, thought of the movies. So they would go to the movies, watch Charlie Chaplin and silent films and call it a day. And a lot of people couldn't afford that at this point. Like I've reiterated multiple times. So most of the news broadcasting corporations in America started to see the television and started to see semi potential. Um, But they knew at that point, most of the American audience still viewed the radio as the preferred medium but there was still this kind of hybrid thing going on where they would do a broadcast, but also at the same time have the radio uh, play the news. So there was a little bit of investment in television during the 1930s, but not significant. Uh, obviously, as we know, that changed tremendously and TV became you know the predominant industry and radio has become this sort of novelty slash dying thing. But... That came with, you know, the change of times and all of this stuff. And one of the main things that changed and accelerated that process was World War II. So World War II takes place in the early... uh, Well, America enters World War II in the early 1940s. uh, But most of the time in the 1930s and early 40s, for the most part, it's pretty depressing. There's a lot of, you know, depression. Obviously, the war hits. And so a lot of people get shipped off to war. So a lot of families are torn apart, all of these things. So there wasn't really a lot of, you know typically when art thrives is when you have uh, a thriving time within a country Um, or like, uh, like usually like when you have like a massive flourishment of art is when your country is booming, right? Was when people have the time to sit down and actually create stuff and people have the time to consume that content, right? I mean, look at, Look at the Renaissance, for example, in Italy. I I know I'm going way back. But at that time, I mean, the economy was flourishing. Even the poorest of people to the middle class of people weren't doing that bad, relatively speaking, in their own, you know, thing in their own uh, standing within society. They weren't treated. Of course, there were people that were treated horribly during that time. I'm not saying the Renaissance was some perfect time, but relatively speaking, the standard of living was pretty high. And so as a result, people had more time to create art and invest in different things. Uh, And so, you know, art and culture and all of these things were much more promoted during the Renaissance. And so, but the thing is like during you know, this early time in America when the TV was invented, there wasn't that, so there wasn't a lot of progressive art and people trying to come up with stuff uh, in regards to entertainment. But the people, the radio, like I said earlier, was the place where people would get information, and also the radio was one of those main avenues for entertainment uh, that was being done as well. So one of the main examples of how people would get entertainment on the radio was when people would kind of like read sort of like late night stories, kind of like I do, I guess, for a podcast, which is kind of ironic because they've been doing this since the 30s. But like they would read sort of stories and like reenact uh, the different parts and all of these stuff. And there was this guy by the name of Orson Welles, and he uh, had this brilliant idea through CBS's radio station to reenact uh, H.G. Wells's book, War of the Worlds. And so what CBS and other radio work, uh, networks would do at the time is they would adopt the novels for radio. So they would like make it kind of like a screenplay that you could hear on the radio. So it'd be like a, it'd kind of be like a podcast for sorts, of course, you know, be infiltrated with advertisements as we do here in America. But it was sort of like the early version of an audiobook that was more animated and and stuff like that. But Orson Welles with this, with the war of the worlds. And for those of you that know history, you know, this is a very famous uh, thing that happened made it into kind of like a newscast and like put his sort of own spin on uh, on, the, on the book. And it was so realistic to the point where, you know, people saw that this was being broadcast from CBS and they thought it was legitimately news. They thought there was legitimately like Martians attacking Earth. And so a lot of people were like freaking out and it was so heavily listened to and consumed that, like, people were, like, calling into CBS like and, like, freaking out, like, oh, my God, the Martians are attacking the United States. Like, we need to prepare all of these things. And it was, like, this widespread hysteria because it sounded so much like a newscast. And so Orson Welles, the next day, had to, like, go up to uh, the headquarters of CBS and, like, publicly, you know apologize and like do a press conference and all that. But I just thought that was a really funny story because that's just how popular the radio was at that point was that people were listening to these stories on the radio versus, you know, watching broadcasts on, on, uh, on television. And that was a state of this country, state of entertainment in this country for a long time. You just had people reading novels, books, all of that type of stuff. So that was what was happening uh, pre world war II And during world war II. a lot of people would hear their news on the radio and all of these things but things kind of started to shift when the news network started to really you know invest more money and resources into the te- into the television and so bring in the FCC so television news really started to break out in the 1940s and that ca- and with that came the FCC which is the Federal Communications uh, corporation I believe if I got that wrong I apologize but the FCC basically intervened because they realized they wanted to kind of get ahead of the game here in terms of news They're you know because we don't know like who controls these cable broadcasts it could just be news and entertainment all these things so the FCC was established back in 1934 and it was mostly established for the radio. So at the time they had basically adapted a lot of their rules related to radio news broadcasts and stuff like that. So when the TV started, when the TV side of things started to pop off, they kind of adapted their rules based on that. And so the FCC basically one of the main things that they did was that they were an overseeing body that made sure that every someone was overseeing communication, and no one was saying anything like too stupid. So like you have that rule where there's like a constant 10 second delay just in case someone says an expletive on a live broadcast, stuff like that. That's what the FCC does. The FCC' is making sure that stuff is regulated and that airwaves aren't necessarily um what's it called? like polluted with you know, misinformation and swearing. and and it, you know that it's kept relatively g, I guess, so to speak. Uh, The initial purpose of the the, uh, FCC actually was to make sure that like bigger companies like NBC and CBS didn't have too much of a monopoly over the radio waves and weren't just like buying up other local radio stations and just like continuing to dominate the industry. Um, So their purpose was to be like, all right, let's keep it fair for like the local broadcast too. Okay, NBC and CBS, like you can have your own stations, but like let the local people do their thing as well. Anyway, so the thing is, the radio market continued to advance. But as the war, like during the war, during the war, the radio was still the predominant medium. But as the war ended, networks started to really invest way more money into broadcasting the news on the TV. And so- The FCC shifted into making more policies, hence the Fairness Doctrine, which is one of the key policies that the FCC actually put into place back in the 1940s. And basically what what the Fairness Doctrine said was it was a policy that said when it came to current events and certain things related to political natures and all of that stuff, there had to be equal airtime examining multiple sides and perspectives to this issue. And actually, this is one of the most fantastic things the American government has done. They were like, "Listen, like, let's when if we are going to broadcast the news on television or on you know anything, let's keep it fair. Let's make sure that people are hearing both sides and can make an informed and educated decision for themselves." So that was amazing. That's why CBS and NBC have been known, or were known during this time and through the '50s, '60s, and '70s, as one of the most, um, you know, fair pieces of news. In the country, because they would narrate the news and they would tell you the facts from both sides. But unfortunately, in 1987, during the Reagan administration, the doctrine got thrown out because a lot of conservatives at that time felt that it impeded on their First Amendment rights and they weren't allowed to say whatever they felt and they couldn't spread what they thought was the truth. And it got into this weird argument of like, what really is the truth? And eventually the doctrine got thrown out. But that's the, you know, it was a doctrine that was in place for 30 something years in America, and it made this country's journalism the first class standard of the world, really, at that point, because, you know, they were allowed to, or they, they were allowed, to, they were basically encouraged to spread both sides. So, I mean, really, like if the Fairness Doctrine existed today, you wouldn't have guys like Don Lemon, Chris Cuomo, Rachel Maddow, you know, Bill O'Reilly, Tucker Carlson, Rush Limbaugh. Like they wouldn't have existed to the extreme that they did. Sure, they may have, you know, had a little bit of a platform, but it, it probably wasn't uh, to the extreme, you know, audiences that they reach, and the millions of people that, you know, listen to them, whatever. Anyway, of course, when you talk about the news in this country, you have to talk about the iconic anchors of this era. There, you have to. You have to. And for those of you that are like, dude, this is so nerdy. I'm going to turn this off. Let me talk to you about some of these iconic anchors, okay? Because I I'm a, I was a big anchor fan before the anchors turned into, you know, the CNN fucks we see today, right? So here's the, here are the three iconic anchors, I guess, uh that in my not in my life, but uh that I find to be like three of the most important pillars of TV journalism. So the first one I really want to talk about is a guy by the name of Walter Cronkite. And for those of you that don't know, Walter Cronkite is one of the most influential, like men, uh, anchor men to ever graze television in Americans. They a lot of people trusted their opinions in politics because of him. He provided an equal, you know, perspective on both sides. Whatever he, Walter Cronkite said carried a lot of weight because people trusted him and because people thought what he was saying was right, because he was very reasonable. Actually, there's a famous story that President Johnson. Uh, back in 1968, didn't chose to not run for reelection because he because Cronkite was pretty critical of his decisions and the stuff that he was doing in Vietnam. And he there was a famous quote that says, "If I lost Cronkite, I lost middle America." And it's one of the more iconic quotes, and it just sh- goes to show how powerful Walter Cronkite in his peak in the 60s really was. Uh, and he was the man that was just well trusted amongst all of America. And then you have Edward Murrow and Murrow was like another sort of uh, of journalist that was really well respected. He was actually one of the first live war correspondents. He went out to World War II and re- reported live from the battlefields and like hung in there and like did some investigative journalism and all of this stuff. So he was more really one of the first like big investigative reporters that you ever saw. Uh, And the Red Scare was one of the primary events in the 1950s is when the American government was like hunting for communism during the peak of the cold war and all of these things. And Murrow, Edward Murrow basically created this first show called see it now where he kind of did what I'm doing, which is pretty cool where he took like one singular issue and like dug into it on all sorts of different perspectives and gave his opinion on it in the end. And Edward Murrow did a whole episode and a whole argument against McCarthyism and Joseph McCarthy and, you know, how he was spreading lies with his Red Scare stuff. And basically, he put the entire conflict to rest because the American people were like, okay enough's enough. This is some bullshit. Like Edward Murrow said that. And the entire nation basically was like, all right, like we're we're not this is not an issue. America, let's move on. So these anchors had tremendous amounts of power. I mean, he made Joseph McCarthy so deeply unpopular that he lost election. Like McCarthy was basically blacklisted for politics at that time. And this was all because of one journalist, Edward Murrow. like these that's how absolute savage these journalists were back in the day, dude. They could just destroy people uh, because they were so well trusted. I mean, can you think of a journalist right now that could destroy someone's career? No. Chris Cuomo says something fifty five percent of America says, "Fuck you." <laughs> we don't give a shit right like same thing on the other side rush limbaugh says something the other 50 percent of americans like who the hell are you no and they don't listen so like anchors back then were so widely popular and i think that's really cool but anyway you got tom brokow who's the kind of the more modern version of these two right and i can i can toss in dan rather into this conversation as well but he's sort of uh uh, the more the modern type of anchor, Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, like th- those three kind of, and they've been sort of the face of the more modern era of news. Um, Tom Brokaw is one of the first people to like interview international leaders on television, Mikhail Gorbachev being one of them. Um, him and Katie Couric are known as like being some, like two of the biggest voices when it came to like reporting on the 9-11 attacks live. Um, and the point is like these anchors, like despite them being messengers of the news are viewed as the journalists of America because they're so heavily in people's minds, right? Like, who gives you the news? And that's who people view as a journalist. Like, anchors are really messengers, but the reality is they're viewed as, you know, these epic journalists when, you know, maybe maybe they're not on the ground all the time, but they but they're the ones who are talking to us in our living rooms and, and stuff like that. But anyway, that's my quick breakdown when it comes to news and television because that's it. That's a huge part of TV and news. And I just want to give you the quick rundown of all the anchors and all that stuff. So that's like your quick 10-minute crash course, I guess. Cuz I didn't want to I didn't want to bore you. That's the that's kind of the more boring substantive stuff. I want to talk about TV shows. We're talking about television. I want to talk to you guys about all the TV shows. So let's break down the more fun stuff. And We got to talk about the 1950s, right? We went into the forties and how news became, you know, as popular as it was on TV and how television networks started investing in news and creating their own empires uh, like CBS and NBC and CBS and NBC at this point started to realize like, okay, like Americans are turning more to the TV at this point. It's It's more about the television. So how do we, uh, get America. How do we get that same radio attention that Orson Welles had with War of the Worlds to the TV? So, hence comes the first real TV shows in the 1950s. You got some of the first quote-unquote real TV shows here. Um, and the thing is, like, like I said, like America's at first, America at first didn't really use TV for entertainment. It was more focused on serious matters and all of these things. Then, cue the Ed Sullivan Show. The Ed Sullivan Show completely shifted the narrative um ed sullivan was you know one of it was a kind of main stand-up act in the early 1950s he was known as being like a comedian and it was funny and so i think it was nbc basically hired him and was like yo nbc or cbs basically hired him and was like run your own show bring on like all the famous celebrities you want interview them put stuff put music on like let's let's see what happens and the show did so successfully well it ran for almost two decades. It was the foundation for late night television in this country. I mean, Ed Sullivan was like the first late night show host before Johnny Carson, before, um, you know, all of the other Craig Ferguson and all the other modern late night show hosts, we know today Letterman, all that stuff. Uh, He was the foundation of that. He basically like would bring on musicians and they would play live concerts on TV. He would interview famous celebrities and do all of these things. And so it would basically turn into this huge, it was like this huge music extravaganza uh, on TV every day. So that was that was pretty cool. And the type of style that Ed Sullivan put forth on TV was very popular in late night, even today. Um, there would be interviews and such as well. Uh, this would eventually run. I mean, the show ran for 20 plus years. It was immensely popular. And it was really one of the first American shows, so to speak, to pull, blow up, on a national pop culture stage. Like everyone would tune into the Ed Sullivan show at whatever time it was, you know, five times a week. Uh, And that was like the popular thing. People really loved his show. And that was sort of like a late night, more live kind of like fun version of the news. And it wasn't just the Ed Sullivan show that was popping off at the time. There was a show that a lot of you probably know called I love Lucy, which I mean, is known as being the first American sitcom. And so I love Lucy was like the first show of its type. People talk about I love Lucy. They're like, yeah, it was kind of like that first sitcom. It was the OG sitcom. Um, and it was the first ever show that was shot in front of a studio audience, 35 mil. Um, what is it? Is it milliliter? 35 i'm not a film nerd i used to be in film dude it's like a 35 mil camera um i forget like what it's called but like it's like a, is it like a milliliter i i don't fucking know it's like a 35 milliliter camera uh, i think it is milliliter actually 35 milliliter camera and it is considered to be i mean by many critics and a lot of people who watch the show one of the greatest shows of all time uh the plot of the show i mean listen the plots of these shows in the 1950s weren't necessarily the most like complex game of thrones Jon snow uh all all this like degenerate like all this shit right like it wasn't like super complex there wasn't a lot of like subplots and stuff going on but the show was basically about lucy trying to make it into the show business alongside her husband who is the lead singer of a band right and it was her various adventures through new york city with her best friend and uh And, you know, trying to break in as a woman into this male-dominated industry. And so it did really, really well. A lot of people liked it. Uh, It was also Lucille Ball's, like, first kind of time to shine. You know, this was her first show. She was probably, like, one of the first huge female celebrities. Her, Marilyn Monroe, uh, a couple of others in this category. But she was one of the first huge female celebrities to, like, take off on television. And the character development, like, like I said, the character development isn't what I Love Lucy is known for, but rather some of the more physical, the physical comedy, uh, the slapstick, the running gags, kind of like what you would expect from a 1950s TV show. Uh, and coming up with sort of the framework of what a half an hour sitcom episode would look like, I Love Lucy kind of established the basic foundations of that. Um, it was actually one of the first shows, fun fact, that had an interracial marriage on television and a woman like visibly pregnant on screen, which at the time was like tremendously liberal. People were like, Oh, the woman is pregnant on screen. So like, we've come a long fucking way from the 1950s guys. Like people were freaking out over, you know, Lucille ball being pregnant on screen. Um, and, and, Fun fact the husband in the show is actually married to Lucille Ball in real life. So it was like a husband and wife thing, uh, which is pretty cool. But it was insanely popular when it was on. The, it's broken Nielsen record ratings like, I mean, like insane amounts. They're likely records that will probably never be broken because. No one is that locked into a cable show anymore because we have streaming platforms and all of these things. Like a lot of the Nielsen records will always, like, will continue to stay the same because no one is is willing to uh, watch a show on cable when they know they could watch it on Hulu the next day with five minute ads, right? Like no one, no one gives a fuck to watch shit live anymore, which is kind of sad because live TV's got its own charm to it. But anyway, um, the Nielsen ratings, some of the highest of all time, likely records that will never be broken. And yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. I've seen a few episodes of I Love Lucy as a kid. I think it's pretty funny. I think it's a good show. I, I don't know if it's for everyone. I wouldn't necessarily sit here and recommend I Love Lucy and call it the greatest show of all time to everyone. I could definitely see the appeal, though. Um, if you ask your parents, though, they probably watched it. A uh, few of them, if especially the white white people who are watching this. like You ask your white parents if they've, <laughs> if they've watched the show. They probably have. Um, my immigrant people, not so much. I'm not sure. I don't think so. But... Um, but yeah, they they probably remember it. It's a it's a pretty classic TV show. Other shows that kind of originated from this foundation that I Love Lucy put out were the Andy Griffith show, which actually my parents watched. That was one of the first shows I ever watched. Fun fact: uh, Beverly Hills Hillbill- Beverly Hills Hillbillies and other shows like that. Uh, so those were kind of uh, so I Love Lucy was kind of the foundation. It's a very cute little sitcom, and uh, it's got some interesting plot points to it for sure one of the other genres of tv at this point in the 1950s that was absolutely popping off popping off was the western so for those of you that don't know i don't act, i don't actually know does gen is gen z like into westerns is that a thing i mean like uh, they're not really that popular now because like there's been a lot of people who have been like westerns were offensive and like you know cowboys and indians is like incredibly rude and like culturally inappropriate and all of these things and like yeah sure i guess but Another genre that I mean, the the fact is like this genre like dominated early American television, uh, and shows like Gunsmoke and Bonanza like were all over TV, all over. They ran for like twenty plus seasons for some of them, um, and this was like the main genre of TV before, like I Love Lucy and stuff, like really popularized the sitcom. Uh, Westerns kind of considered a very uh, consisted of very similar plot lines of what you're probably used to. Um, Like Bonanza, for example, uh, was is like considered one of the longest running Westerns of all time. It's basically I mean, it's very simple. It's a it's about a family protecting their ranch in Nevada. The show ran for 13 seasons, put up incredible numbers because people would watch it every day or every week or whatever. Um, and it was one of the first shows, actually, it was crazy is like you would expect a, a, a Western to, you know, kind of fulfill those stereotypes of like, oh, it's going to be super racist towards, you know, Native Americans and it's going to make white people seem like they're the heroes and all this stuff. But actually Bonanza was one of the first shows to really tackle racism. Uh, and it did a very good job of it at the time. They were very on top. Like Westerns at the time, the 1950s were very known, were known for covering the social issues at the time, which is kind of cool if you think about it. Uh, Gunsmoke was another show that's very similar to Bonanza. Uh, it was about a settlement in 1830, 1870s Kansas. Gunsmoke ran for 20 seasons and 635 episodes. Talk about a binge watch. Y'all think you can binge watch Grey's Anatomy? Nah, binge watch Gunsmoke, dude. I would love to see if a Gen Zer could binge watch all 635 episodes of Gunsmoke. Y'all can do your Naruto animes; those got like 500. Can you put up 635 episodes? How fast can you do it? Challenge, challenge to all my Gen Zers. I sure as hell it would take me years. Um, <laughs> but Gunsmoke was actually a radio show uh, back, you know, when radio was the predominant medium, and they adapted it into a show for TV. So it ended up becoming like a successful hit because, you know, a lot of people from radio transitioned to TV. And those were kind of the types of shows that the American audience was looking at at the time. So obviously, you know, the intro of the sitcom and shows like I Love Lucy, you know, brought in a whole new crowd to the television. Western sort of entered a demise because people were like, it's kind of repetitive. You know, this I Love Lucy stuff is pretty cool. It's fresh. It's about the present. Like, I, you know, Westerns are cool, but like, I Love Lucy is interesting, and I want to see like where sitcoms and stuff could potentially go. But the thing is, that wasn't the only thing that was going on on TV at the time. It wasn't just TV shows. It wasn't just I Love Lucy and Westerns. It was actually live events that ended up becoming one of the more popular things. And when you talk about television, you, I would be... Uh, an idiot to not mention the live broadcast and how the introduction to live sports on television to the American audience was critical. So one of the OG ways to watch sports was actually listening to games on the radio. Those of you probably know that it still exists. You can still listen to games on the radio. I love listening to baseball games on the radio. I love listening to basketball games on the radio. Used to do it all the time. Uh, It's so fun. It's such a refreshing thing compared to uh, compared to watching it on your TV. I would highly recommend it. If you ever get the opportunity, like listen to a baseball game on the radio, listen to a football game on the radio, or, sorry, basketball game on the radio, um, stuff like that. But the TV, you know, so people were listening on the radio, but TV brought like a whole new element to sports. And really what popularized TV massively in on like live TV was the concept of the instant replay, the instant replay was really popularized in the 1960s. And one of the first uses of it actually came in like an army Navy football game, the game they play every year. And, it was like the first use of instant replay wasn't like a slow motion, like tackle that you're used to, right? Like in today's modern day football, where you get like 15 different angles of the play, but it was like the instant replay back then was at normal speed. It was just playing the play over again. And the machine that made the instant replay happen was like 1300 pounds. So they had to like go through and like set it up. And it was like this whole process, but it was huge. It was huge to like see a play. Like if it was an extreme highlight play to win the game, right? You could see that play happen on like TV again. And that was like unheard of. Like, it's like, whoa, like it's live and it's playing again. Insane. So, it really helped accelerate the power of sports in this country because people could, you know, rewatch stuff and it accelerated the popularity of football like crazy. NFL would not, I don't think the NFL would be as popular if instant replay did not exist. And you can see, you know, different, multiple different camera angles. And we obviously know what instant replay is developed into today. you can see angles from all over. You, there's a pylon cam for Christ's sake. Like you could see so many different angles of where the ball's going and how the ball's being thrown. And there's angles on, there's cameras on players and analytics and all this stuff. So, I mean, obviously the technology is, you know, tremendously advanced from this point. But it's produced like more content. And as a result, like at that time, it was like a huge, it was a huge deal. It made the television product look significantly better. But however, it wasn't just sports that were live in the 1960s, but also things like the moon landings and presidential debates that really had uh, the country hooked. Uh, again, president, early presidential debates and the moon landings have ratings that will probably never be broken unless there's some huge national emergency. Um Kennedy Nixon in the 19s in 1960 was the first televised presidential debate. Um and it was the aesthetic, it was the first time that the aesthetic became important when electing a president. Usually, you know, you would hear these debates on the radio, so it would be very content based, like who is speaking better, who is more eloquent when they're talking about the issues, who's actually saying stuff I care about. Uh, But this is the first debate in like forever that a lot of people thought that, you know, John F. Kennedy may not have had the best command of the issues, but he had a great command of the camera and he looked good and he had makeup on and, you know, he was a good looking guy and people like trusted what he was saying compared to Nixon, who was, you know, had his handkerchief and was dabbing his sweat and looked out of sorts and just did not look good on camera. And so as a result, people and like there were national polls done, people significantly thought that Kennedy won the debate because he looked better on the camera and on the screen. And this form of debate was actually you know, allowing us to see the faces of people. It really allowed there to sort of be a new dimension and a new conversation with messaging, which is pretty crazy if you think about it. So the era of live events really changed the way we look at certain things and really changed our perspective in terms of how we look at the world uh, from an aesthetic point of view. So it's these little things that we don't think about uh, that happened on TV that, you know, contribute to the way we look at society now. I mean, you look at society now, it's all based on aesthetics. And, this, it came from, you know, in things like instant replay and eventually, you know, making the product look better and putting your face on the camera and like how that became a huge thing. And now it's like, if you like looking good in lighting and photos on Instagram, right? So it's crazy where stuff has come. I'm going to get my charger in five seconds and plug this in. So give me five seconds. Hold on. uh, uh, I'm right here. See, boys, I'm back. Boys and girls and other people. Other gender-neutral individuals. I am back. Your boy is back. Your boy is back. See? Boom. Boom. Boom! Hold on. Let's go. Okay, so we're good. Anyway, like I said, live events, extremely important in the way that our society looks at tv today but here's the thing we have adults getting involved with tv now right you have sports you got live events you got america's first real tv shows like i love lucy and all these things people are having a great time and that's awesome but there's one main demographic of people that has not been touched and that's that's kids kids were not watching tv there wasn't any shows to you know come to them you you think of like who's the babysitter now in the house with working parents it's the tv that didn't exist back then kids had to like you know play in the dirt and hang out people argue it's better i'm with them to a certain extent but there was no television that existed until the 1970s when the kids got involved into tv here's the thing right 1970s was really the 1970s was really the era when like the modern sort of tv show of sorts was born right and and there was a show on television that came to be in the 1970s that would forever change the way that every kid grew up uh if you were born in the 1970s 80s 90s 2000s 2010s even now the show is still one of the most popular shows of all time and that's sesame street sesame street is the show that pretty much every kid has grown up on and its creators came up with the show back in the 1970s and the main question that the sesame street creators were thinking of at this point was how could we educate children about real shit that's going on in the world and about real stuff that's happening? How do we educate our kids on this in a proper manner? Obviously, we know that the Sesame Street creators ended up creating a model that works fucking phenomenally. It works super well. We've seen the way it's worked. It's been incredibly effective. And Sesame Street has been made in several different languages throughout the world. It's created memories out of all of our childhoods. Like we could all <laughs> agree with that to a large extreme and it's the longest running children's television show ever. And so it'll, and I think it'll continue to hold that right. It's been going for 52 seasons here in America. I think it'll go for 52 more. I'm pretty sure of that, fact. you know, bringing in characters who are of different races, who are, you know, uh, have different, uh, mental capacities learning disabilities uh who represent different aspects of life attack different issues like death and uh grief and how to handle those things divorce and how to handle those things as kids i mean sesame street is a show that what makes it so good is that it's so simple and it really does a good job of showing younger viewers how to tackle like really complicated and nuanced things that adults do right i mean yeah And like these are characters on the show that two year olds can resonate with, and their forty and their thirty five year old parents that are raising them are like, damn, I grew up with these same characters, and so it's like this bonding experience right now of sorts in the modern day. Back then, I mean, people were like, I don't know if this is gonna work, and then you know they put it on TV for two years, and people all of a sudden started to love it because you know their kids were into Sesame Street. It was the first iconic comedy, and of course, Sesame Street is iconic. Right, We've t- I've t- I talked about it for two minutes about how it's just so amazing and how the model is really cool. Sesame Street is iconic for kids. Yeah, but what were the other shows that were going on in this era, Nuge? It's not just Sesame Street. That was not the only show that was happening. You are right, because there was a show. There was a show that is considered one of the most iconic in our history. I know, most of the shows I'm talking about are pretty iconic, but this show actually, before you know, the 90s, was considered to be the greatest show of all time. Hands down. Hands down the greatest show of all time. It's called MASH. A lot of people haven't heard of MASH. But for those of you that have, it's part of TV show history. It's part of regular history. You have to. When you talk about television shows, you have to, have to, have to discuss MASH. Those of you that don't know, let me give you a quick plot summary. MASH is basically about a Korean War medic and his friends during the Civil or during the Korean War. And the show was actually one of the first to, you know, be take place within a war. It was like one of your first sort of band of brothers-like TV shows, and people really gravitated towards it. Uh, you know, this country being fresh off three wars at that point, right? With World War II, Korea, Vietnam, we had just gone through back to back to back wars and we were in the Cold War and people were just like looking for sort of TV about that. And so MASH actually started airing right during the Vietnam War. And so it was commentating on war using the Korean War because that's when the show was taking place. And so balancing, it was actually one of the first shows ever to balance political commentary with the actual you know, sitcom slash Dark comedy drama of the show. And MASH was actually one of those first shows that was really complicated and it stretched genres. It wasn't just a comedy show, it wasn't just a drama. It was a little bit of both. And so that was pretty cool how it encompassed a lot of different subject matters and concepts. And the legacy of MASH is one that will never be forgotten stretched over 11 seasons, so 11 years, 256 episodes, one of the most successful comedy dramas and television shows ever. It's got many Emmy nominations and still, like I said, critically recognized as one of the greatest television shows of all time. Let me just give you some facts as to how MASH, how popular MASH was 11 years after the show released. The finale of MASH still is, and will be the most watched and one of the biggest events in television history. I'm talking about presidential debates. I'm talking about 9-11 news broadcast. I'm talking about all of these things, all of these iconic events that have taken, a place, taken place in America. 2016 election. All the modern events you think of when it comes to TV. MASH is still the highest, one of the highest viewed broadcasts that happened live of all time. It's higher than Friends too. Shocking. 106 million people in the united states of america were watching the finale of mash uh and like there's a rumor that in like new york city like all the toilets like the the water consumption of the city like spiked at 9 30 when everyone like flushed their toilets in between the break of both episodes just like a little joke uh so the only thing that can like really like the the second um and like to continue my point, like the second most popular television broadcast of all time was like the Super Bowl, right? Like our live sports. Um, and that's the only thing that can compete with this finale of MASH. Uh, I think there's a super there's a couple Super Bowls that are ahead of it in terms of just peer viewership. So, um, but then other than that, it's MASH. And then like the second highest TV show finale, like viewed of all time was Cheers, and that was 83 million viewers. MASH had 106 million people watching the finale. I personally have never watched MASH in my life. Did this did me researching the show about a Korean war medic and how he's with his friends and hanging out want to see it? Absolutely. It seems like it's a pretty cool show. Um it, it MASH in general is like you know, I I'm sure you talk to like old white people and they love MASH. Um but but for real though, it seems like MASH is like uh is a pretty cool war show and it seemed like it tackled a lot of really cool stuff at the time and it um what's it called like it was just it was like badass and it was like the shit at the time and it's a part of tv show history and i'd be a negligent podcaster if i did not bring up mash and did not respect the fact that mash is one of the more iconic shows in television show history and that people in this day and age still talk about it as being you know such a iconic part of their lives. So yeah, that's the 1970s, right? So that's going on. You have MASH. You have Sesame Street. And of course, of course, of course, of course, I have to bring up my favorite show from the 1970s, Bewitched. Bewitched, Bewitched. Bewitched is so good. For those of you that, like, this has nothing to do with television show history. This is just me, like, fangirling over Bewitched because I love it so much. Bewitched is so freaking good. For those of you that haven't watched Bewitched, I think it's like such a unique concept. It's basically about this like New York City woman that like marries this guy and then like it was like one of those first like magic like witch type shows to like ever take the uh to like ever come into like cable network. And uh, it's about this New York city woman that marries this man and he, the man finds out that like, he's married a family of witches and like, it's it's gone like so far deep and like they turn into witches at night and they can cast magic and all of these things. And it's like about this wife's adventures through New York city and all this stuff. And it was like about a strong woman protagonist and it's just, it's a really good show. I remember watching it as a kid. Um, Samantha, the main woman's uh, the main woman, female characters name. Super cool. I thought the whole show was just so good. Uh, it's a unique concept. It's it's one of those like forgotten 1970s shows for sure. It definitely did not get Emmy nominations. It's not known as the greatest television show of all time, but it's a good watch. It's entertaining. It's got that little 1970s flair to it. Would highly recommend if you guys are looking for a new show to watch. I don't actually know if it's on any streaming platforms, but it it's, uh, it is actually... It should be there. It should be on some streaming platform. Bewitched <clears throat> was actually made into a, a movie, a really mediocre movie with like Will Ferrell and I want to say Amy Adams uh, back in the early 2000s. is not a good movie. Watch the show instead. Way better. Black and white, but it's still such a good show. Highly recommend Bewitched. I may go watch an episode after this. I don't know. But highly recommend Bewitched. Go watch it. Anyway, that's the show that I really wanted to talk about. But the 1970s had M.A.S.H., right, and Sesame Street, and the kids got involved into television. So where do we go from here, right? We're kind of reaching this sort of, like, uh, the television show ball is rolling at this point. So let's talk about the 1980s, because this is when we start to see, like, new stuff happening, right? Cheers to the new game shows. It's a pun. You'll see what I'm talking about. The 80s was very interesting for TV because we were post-the era of like talking about, you know, the basic stuff. I feel like the first 20 years of television in this country, the first 30 years of television in this country were like really basic. It's either you talk about the news, you talk about war, you talk about the Western, or you watch the same like I Love Lucy sort of remake over and over again. Because people were like, okay, this sitcom thing was cool in the 50s, but like by the time you got to this 1979, people were like, all right, the sitcom is Relatively the same thing. Okay. And I don't want to watch the War Mask show. Okay. 256 episodes of War was enough for me. So I need something new. I want to change it up when it comes to the sitcom. So introduce Cheers. Cheers was the first show that made the bar or like aka like a meeting place for a sitcom really, really popular. And Cheers is a show that every immigrant father in their mother that immigrated here in the 1980s loves this show. It is iconic, absolutely iconic. Okay, anyway. It was the first show that made the bar popular, and the show was super critically acclaimed. It's got comedic elements mixed with relatable characters that really actually made this show stand out a lot in its era. Uh you had Sam and Diane and Frazier and all of these guys who would basically just come to the bar and have a bunch of adventures and conversations and on and off again, romantic relationships. You know the vibe with these sitcoms. But also, I want to talk about Sam and Diane for a second because this is really important. Sam and Diane were like the predecessor of the romantic relationship that you see in every sitcom. You saw Ross and Rachel and Friends. You see Ted and Robin and How I Met Your Mother. You see Jess and Nick and New Girl. Sam and Diane made that whole possibility of the will-they-won't-they they couple happen. It happened because of Sam and Diane. The Cheers creators were geniuses in creating this whole like will-they-won't-they. They? I and mean, they were the first ones to ever do it. It was the predecessor for a lot of the sitcom relationship tropes that you see today. And we take for granted. We're like, oh, that's cheesy. Sam and Diane invented the cheesy. It was the first show to really do that trope well, to really do that kind of, will they, won't they? Are they going to hook up? Are they in a relationship? Are they hooking up? What's going on? Right? And that's stretched into TV today. You look at every show. Every show's got the will they, won't they? It's a necessary element of a comedy show in today's society. In any comedic show that you see, there's a will they, won't they sort of relationship. But the thing is, Cheers also did a lot of important things besides just do the tropes. It, uh, besides Sam and Diane, Cheers tackled a lot of issues that were ahead of its time. Uh, it talked about things like addiction, alcoholism, homosexuality, feminism, things of that nature that like in the 1980s, like if you talked about alcohol, like you talked about being an alcoholic, like that was not that was really, really rare for people to be open about that. And the main character of Cheers is a recovering alcoholic. So it really brought out a lot of conversation in regards to that. Um, and the, the fact is like cheers is known as one of the most iconic American sitcoms of all time. We all like, if you haven't heard of cheers and you've lived in this country for, you know, and you've grown up here, like you're whack, like you should have heard of the show. Like it's, it's really, really popular. Um, but cheers was almost canceled after the first season because people thought it was stupid and it was new and it was fresh and it was like different. And people were like, ew, like I'm used to, I love Lucy and the same, you know, recycled crap. But then people really started to watch and it became, it had one of the most loyal audiences of all time. It's it made, It's like critically just got awards on awards on awards. And if you ask any of the older people in their life, in your life, like you you talk to like people who are like seven years old. Like let, let's say you're my age, right? 2000 born. You talk to people that are like seven, eight years older than you. They talk about Ross and Rachel as being like the will, they won't they couple. It's iconic. You talk to people in my generation. It's Ross and Rachel, Ted and Robin. You Like that's our, that's kind of our will day, won't they? You talk to people who are our parents age, people who are, you know, born in the 1960s, 1970s, Sam and Diane. It was Sam and Diane. That was the couple at the time that it was like the will they, won't they? Immigrant parents, like I said, adore cheers. Okay. If you're Brown, your parents love cheers. It's, it's just the truth. Um, and it's become a huge part of like the city of Boston. So the show takes place in Boston. It's actually become a huge part of the culture. There's cheers bars all over the city. It's become like, uh, you know, this big deal and cheers just drastically affected the way that the American television landscape worked. Because for the first time since I Love Lucy, there was actually a sitcom that people were sitting there and they were like relating to. You know, you had the the ex-alcoholic baseball player. You had the Diane Chambers, who is this college-educated, like smart woman, but she wants more out of life, right? You have Frazier, who's the psychiatrist. You have all these different characters. And it was actually one of the first times you had like a really sexualized character, Sam Malone. Right. Like, of course, like there, to a certain extent, like there was sexualization of with female characters at that point or like through the years, but it wasn't like over like Sam Malone, like was like the OG Barney Simpson of sorts. Like He was the playboy, like, you know, would go sleep around with women, all these things. And so he became like one of those first like sexualized characters on TV and it became the norm because of because of Cheers and you can't talk about Cheers without talking about the spin-offs that succeeded because Cheers arguably has one of the most successful spin-offs of all time in Frasier Frasier ran for 10-11 seasons. Uh it's one of the most successful spin-offs of a show. Friends tried to do the same thing that Cheers did and do a spin-off. Uh it epically flopped for those of you that know what I'm talking about. Joey was the spin-off that Friends tried to do. It was not good. It was not great. Uh Cheers is also a show that like sp- like just changed the game in so many ways like it brought shows that had immense popularity to it created a whole new set of sitcoms um like Frasier, like uh there's a couple more spinoffs that took place from cheers that are a little lesser known but it created this whole family uh, of sitcoms and just completely based on its 11 season run or 10 season run and the thing is, it wasn't just the sitcoms that were changing. It wasn't just cheers coming into the into the game and just saying, like, we're going to blow people out of the water. People were really into, like, gambling at this point, right? The 1980s. You were talking about, like, can, how how can we earn money quickly? This was a main question that was in a lot of Americans' minds. And so as a result, game shows became the huge craze of Hollywood back in the 1980s. You had shows like The Price is Right and Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune that really started to garner a lot of attention, particularly on primetime. The thing is, though, game shows didn't start in the 1980s. They started in the 1930s, and they were wildly popular at the time. You know, you have to keep in mind, like it was they were probably on the radio or Great Depression. People wanted to earn money. People wanted to have that hope that they were earning money. And game shows play on the need that all Americans have. Which is how can I get rich quick by doing easy things? Look at Jeopardy. Look at Wheel of Fortune. Look at Price is Right. All of these shows you get rich quick. That is what American game shows—the concept is—and that's what makes them so popular and makes people want to watch more because they feel like they could be those people on TV. The popularity continued though until the late 1950s. Uh, like game show popularity was immensely popular to the 30s and the, the 30s through the 50s. But what happened in the late 50s was one of the game shows at the time was caught having the producers rig the game. So like the no, the people couldn't win, you know, it was unfair, all of these things. And it was this huge scandal. I don't want to get into it. I don't really know all the details. There's a movie about it called Quiz Show. um, And it was like this huge scandal where like all the game shows were like investigated by different uh, bodies. And like they went to uh, eventually this whole thing went to Congress and Congress had to step in. And they basically changed the policy, saying that game shows could not be rigged. They passed a bunch of rules, making it, you know, transparent with its contestants and producers and all of these things. And that whole national scandal basically just, like, led to this demise of game shows for a little bit. And a lot of people just, like, giving the side eye to game shows because it was like, dude, I thought we were, like, we had an agreement that this was going to be fair. But it clearly wasn't all of this stuff. And so the national scandal really led to a little huge decrease in popularity but by the 1980s people started to come around on game shows again you know how it is with with stuff in america people people go through their phases and they're like oh like i i hate this and like i'm never gonna be friends and then it's like you know it's it, 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 it 20 years go by and it's a new generation and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's not that bad actually like maybe 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 and then like you know Things start, to, things start to change a little bit. Things start to change a little bit, right? And so game shows start to come into popularity again. Now I'm going to start to talk about all the iconic game show hosts because that's just the type of guy I am. I love game shows, right? You got guys like Alex Trebek, Art Fleming, obviously before Trebek, but Trebek is, you know, iconic uh, for this generation with Jeopardy, Bob Barker, Pat Sajak, Vanna White. I mean, all these guys just start to take off in popularity. Um, but I want to give a personal shout out to my favorite game show of the lot, Jeopardy. Uh, Jeopardy is one of those shows that I think like really, I mean, it did go through quite a few stages. Like you had the original Jeopardy with Fleming and the original format, and they shifted the format around a little bit. And eventually it reached the final version that we have today where, you know, where Alex Trebek would uh, narrate the season and all that stuff. I was always taught as a kid from my (laughs) parents that Jeopardy was the game show that required the most skill. And thus, as a result, should be the game show that we watch in our house. So in my house, I grew up watching a lot of Jeopardy and nothing else. Uh, The TV would immediately go off after Jeopardy uh, because no one in my house was watching Wheel. Wheel is bullshit. In my house, Wheel of Fortune is is a fake game show. It's uh, it's luck-based. Do people win $5,000 prizes for spinning a wheel? And Vanna White presses letters. We don't like that in my household, okay? It was that wheel and price were never like, prices. right, were like never uh, in my wheelhouse, personally. I felt like they, I also felt like they were really overproduced and didn't have that same like game show charm that Jeopardy did that had like, you know, like questions and it required skill and trivia and all this stuff. But by the late 1980s, but by the 1980s, All of these shows had huge popularity increases. And this, I mean, the game show revival of sorts was kind of the foundation of reality TV. I'm going to discuss reality TV a little bit later because it becomes popular later. Uh, But it was the first time that real life people were winning massive prizes. And obviously that's a huge appeal to the American people because people thought they could be those people and build this foundation. Like I could do it and I can win this much money and all this stuff. So that's what happened with game shows in the 1980s. But the thing is, there was also another form of TV that was forming in the 1980s. And I know it's been an hour, so bear with me. There was another show in the 1980s that started to take off. It was called The Black Comedy. Obviously, we all know what The Black Comedy is, right? It was, it was all of these different shows like Family Matters and The Cosby Show and Different Strokes and all these things, right? And it came into huge prominence in the 1980s and 1990s because... It was not only just popular with African-American audiences at this point, white people really started to like it as well. And one of the main shows in the 1980s of the black comedy was, okay, I know I can't say his name, but The Cosby Show, okay? And yes, I know Bill Cosby has been canceled and is in jail and has done horrible, horrible things since the show, but the show, in terms of its history, is one of the most iconic uh, in regards to the black comedy genre. The show was extremely popular at the time. Uh, You ask anybody who was in America in the 1980s, they watched the show for a little bit. It was a huge part of TV's history. And the black comedy actually was starting to integrate into white society. So it's an interesting thing to look at. And the Cosby show was sort of one of these bridge shows to be able to do that. Uh, Because when it comes to pop culture at this point in the late 80s, you're starting to see like African-American slash urban slash hip hop culture really become the huge part that it is like NWA, Public Enemy, all the rap stuff is happening. Then you have like all this TV stuff happening like African-American culture was starting to take over pop culture. And so the early versions of the black, like the thing is like the black comedy is controversial, right? Because I call it the black comedy and like early versions of the black comedy had this weird connotation to them of like, Oh, like you're just going to like mess with, uh, like, or sorry, like you're just going to be racist towards black characters and put them down. And like, it was racially charged and all this stuff. And the narrative was charged totally early versions of the black comedy were like that, but shows like the comedy show, Family Matters, Fresh Prince, were shows that really, <coughs> <coughs> sorry, Jesus, but shows like The Cosby Show, Family Matters, Fresh Prince, all that stuff were shows that really push forth a different African-American narrative and are actually like a reformed African-American narrative that white and black could come together and also that African-Americans could be portrayed as upper middle class, wealthy individuals and not just, you know, street scum like they were in the early black comedies. And as fucked up as it is, like African-American became cool within white culture. And so as a result, these black comedies started to see a rise. And the thing is, that was the rise in the black comedy. It was the early 80s, early 90s, like you saw. But the thing is, after Fresh Prince, the black comedy fucking disappeared. Like it became like a subgenre. Obviously, like you had Tyler Perry stuff in the 2000s and whatnot. But until blackish, you didn't really see like a predominantly African-American cast on a huge network television show. Uh, There may have been African-American characters mixed with white characters for sure. I'm not saying that that did not happen. But after the mid nineties, there was a big disappearance of African American shows. If you look at it, I don't know why that was. I don't know what happened, but they kind of went into a subculture for a while. I know there are a few shows like Sister Sister and stuff like that. that ha- That's a Raven and whatnot that happened in the two thousands. But really, it was Blackish that kind of brought that whole thing back into uh, back into existence, and Blackish has had tremendous success. So, shout out to Blackish. But we're getting into the 90s, which is my absolute favorite, 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 favorite decade for television because it's the golden age of sitcoms. For those of you that don't know, I'm a huge sitcom fiend, Um, And I'm going to spoil it right now. Friends is my number one show of all time. I love Friends. I know it's a weird take. I know a lot of people don't like that take. Um, But I think it is one of the best shows of all time. And I'll explain why in this whole 90s piece. But in the 1990s, the sitcom took a turn for the absolute better. Uh, it created arguably some of the most iconic shows that pretty much every American could name. Uh, it's in, It changed pop culture forever. This era of sitcoms was the peak of sitcoms. If There's no coming back from the 1990s. I don't think the early 2000s reached it. And I don't think we're ever going to go back to this era of the 90s again. Before this starts, though, I want to shout out a very important sitcom really quickly uh, that deserves an absolute massive shout out called Everybody Loves Raymond. Everybody Loves Raymond is probably one of the most underrated sitcoms of the 1990s, uh, early 2000s. It's so funny. I love Ray Romano. I love that entire cast. I think it's so fucking hilarious. Uh, It's just written so simply, and it's just so funny. Ray Romano, Patricia Heaton, kill it kill it he's freaking phenomenal i miss ray romano dude where did he go he wrote that show he was in the big sick and he was hilarious in the big sick and then he just like he's just like in stuff every like 10 years and then he dips dude i love like ray romano is like hella underappreciated hella underappreciated i don't know do you do some like canceled hollywood stuff that would be bad if i was like just shouting him out and he like did some shit i don't know i don't know why ray romano isn't as popular But anyway, that's one of the main shows from the 90s that I really like. 90s, early 2000s was uh, Everybody Loves Raymond. But shows like Friends, Seinfeld, and Boy Meets World were kind of the shows that really were taking off during this period. And I want to start with my favorite fucking show of all time, Friends. Classic, 10-season, beautiful banger. All right, started in the mid-90s and obviously became the global powerhouse and phenom that it did. Uh, And I think... One of the main reasons why I enjoy Friends is because I could enjoy it with a variety of different people. It doesn't have to just be myself. I'm not the only person that likes Friends. I can watch Friends with my my siblings. I can watch Friends with my family. I can watch Friends with my parents and laugh. I can watch Friends with my parent with my other friends and laugh i can watch friends with my parents friends and laugh i can watch friends with my grandparents and laugh cousins so on i can list all sorts of group of people and i've had memories and memories on memories watching friends with like some of my favorite people in my entire life and it's just it creates the it's just friends has resonates with all sorts of different people it's so simple it's so like the characters are so like they just get on so well it's just the best like it's one of the best ensemble casts of all time and i think like we have to just recognize that there's a lot of people that love to hate friends because it's not woke or it was super white and yes those criticisms are definitely valid for the show i'm not going to sit here and say that it's not it's invalid in all of these things because it totally is valid but i think what resonated with the audiences at the time And it resonates with audiences today because Friends is still on streaming platforms, it's on HBO Max, and it resonates with with people to this day. I think what resonates is just how modern the show is, how simple it is, and how it was really one of those early shows. It was one of the first ever shows to talk about sex and dating and hooking up and just being like a 20-something who's confused with life. It was one of the first ever shows to really do that. And... I know like there's so many shows that talk about sex, dating, being a 20 something like today, right? It's such an oversaturated genre, but Friends created that genre. And I think it's so important that we recognize that because it was big. Cheers obviously was a huge foundational piece in that category too, but Friends is a little bit different because it was more of like the city life and, and, uh, and all of these things. And I I just like how simple Friends is. And today the archetypes created by the Friends characters, by Phoebe, Joey, Ross, Rachel, uh, Monica, Chandler, like all those character types are used in characters today. I mean, like look at look at New Girl. Nick Miller is a mix of like is Nick Miller is just Chandler, uh, except like more grizzled and from the woods. Like they use similar archetypes to these characters. And like and actually, no, Nick Miller's a mix of Chandler and Phoebe. But like um, but yeah, like I mean the point is like these archetypes are used in in sitcoms today they're used in sitcoms they've been used in sitcoms in the past and they're it's a successful ensemble formula and people have tried to use that and this era in the 1990s with friends and other sitcoms was like what i like about it is they were like just pretty brutally honest uh and they were just done really well another one of these shows that also like killed american audience uh american audiences which was, was seinfeld seinfeld's incredible too um Obviously like the show about nothing was a little bit different than friends. Friends had a little bit more structured of a plot and I personally like friends better, but I could see why Seinfeld was a phenomenal show. Cause it is, it's really, really good. The comedic timing, the comedy of Seinfeld, the different dynamics between the friends and all of these things made it a really iconic show of the nineties. And the, you know, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld team up together to create this fucking masterpiece of scripts that some, epi- like, some episodes of Seinfeld are some of the greatest like television episodes ever seen. Like that's just a fact. Um, and I think all of us could, could, uh, could say that. I mean, and, and the beauty is it's a show about nothing. And I, I like, I like that concept of it. It's just, it's a show about life. And Jerry Seinfeld later admitted like that the concept of the show is how comedians get their material, which is just like through a various collection of different stories. And I thought it was, I thought I just, I liked that a lot. Friends is definitely a more traditional sitcom than Seinfeld. There's like you know traditional plot and all of these things. More experiment and Seinfeld is like was kind of one of the more experimental shows at the time, but it it did really well. I respect I respect Seinfeld for that reason. Of course, you have show you have like more family shows at the time too, like Boy Meets World, Wonder Years, that type of thing, which you know did really well in their own respect, which were more about like the suburban family dynamic, and those were shows you could really watch with your family and all that stuff. Um, And lesser so the uh boy meets world was kind of a little bit about the dating scene and and stuff like that as well but the main criticism of all these shows is lack of color and how they were how they weren't woke and how they weren't highlighting everybody's story but here's the question that i asked to everybody i'm not defending these shows but here's a question i genuinely want to know the answer to does every show have to highlight everyone's story right i think authentic stories come from writers lives writers experiences all of that stuff and i think the authentic stories that come out of people's hearts are much better than forced diversity hires that we see today i mean you see a lot of shows today it's a lot of forced diversity down your throat it's like ah ah indian character oh down my throat check latino character check white character Check right. It's like a fucking checklist. It's bullshit. Like it's it doesn't like it's it's you're checking off races because it's cool to do so in today's Hollywood. Um, and listen, I I'm not going to be negligent and say that Friends doesn't have its issues. Friends had a lot of issues in its writers room. For those of you that don't know, there's a lot of like racial and sexual discrimination within those writers rooms. Writers were like sexually fantasizing about Jeff Franiston, Courtney Cox, and all of these things and like the way they would talk was just not appropriate stuff like that and it really set the foundation for what was to come in hollywood like it was the early sort of like me too stuff that was going on with the friends writer's room really famous california lawsuit that happened in the early 2000s in regards to the writer's room um so and there was only like one black writer on the entire show so like yes there were issues (laughs) With Friends. I'm not saying that they weren't, but I mean, I think the overall show in general was still really good. I enjoyed it. I had a great time watching it, and I'm not going to not gonna apologize for that take. Uh, but I thought it would be really important to acknowledge the fact that Friends does have its issues, and did have issues within the writer's room. But the point is, sitcoms hit a huge peak in the 1990s. You had massive hits like Friends, Seinfeld, Boy Meets World. I could go on. The list is huge. Felicity is another one of those shows that... Actually, you know, Felicity is 2000. I'll shout it out during the 2000s. But If you haven't watched Friends, watch Friends. If you haven't watched Seinfeld, watch Seinfeld. If you haven't watched Frasier, watch Frasier. These are all fantastic shows that I grew up with and um, I love. I dearly love in my heart. Uh, And they created the foundations for a lot of the comedies you see today. And I know we've gone on an hour and 13 minutes and we're still in the early 2000s, but... Bear with me. This is fun. I have great time talking about this stuff. So we'll go through these quickly. We'll run through the 2000s quick. There's like three sections to the 2000s but I'll run through it really fast. And here's the thing, right? The 1990s was about the sitcom. It was about like family-friendly TV. And that was great, right? You could sit in front of the TV with your entire family and watch friends and watch all of these shows. And that's dope. But in the 2000s, you had to watch, like the 2000s was interesting because it was kind of the era of extremes. There were a lot of people at HBO at this, you know, at this cable institution that was airing kind of normal TV. And they realized like, huh, huh. People really like extreme shit because they saw that Friends was so popular and Friends at the time was like really progressive and really liberal and socially liberal and all of these things. And they were like, huh, people really like when we go a little off the rails. So why don't we do that to the complete extreme? So that's what the 2000s were about. It was an era of extremes and whether it came to reality television, HBO shows, all of that stuff, things were happening. And so reality TV show was the first type of extreme. It was taking the game show that you had, you know, resurged in popularity in the early 2000, in the 1980s. And it was taking the game show and putting it on steroids. It was like, so what if we take 18 humans and strand them on an Island, starve them and see who's the last one standing boom survivor. Right what if we have 18 or what if we have 10 pairs of you know uh random people they could be best friends sisters adults you know exes whatever race around the world for a million dollars boom the amazing race right so like tv shows were literally taking like thoughts you would have as a kid and just like putting them on a piece of paper and like actually executing them like survivor and the amazing race when you think about them as pure ideas are ridiculous but like TV is like, fuck it, let's do it. At the time, in the 2000s, it was like taking chances, putting all your chips on the table. And and these shows did crazy numbers because it was the first time people were like, whoa, like Survivor season one is still known as one of the most iconic reality TV show seasons ever. And it's just crazy things that you were imagining in your head. And you're like, holy fuck, how is this going to play out? And you're interested to see how it plays out. You're interested to see how the game plays out. and And it worked. And people responded to that. And the thing is, right, like this, it, the same extreme philosophy that applied to reality TV also applied to regular TV because people were watching Friends in the 90s, like I was saying. And they were like, oh, so cool to talk about sex and dating and all this stuff. So HBO was like, fuck it. Let's take Friends and up it to the max, up it, up the sex to the max, up the violence to the max, the gore to the max. We're going to just up it. And so HBO in the early 2000s, was basically towing the line between extreme and realistic plot lines, and they did it beautifully. And it's the smartest thing a TV exec- TV executive staff has done, because HBO took the hell off after that point. Early 2000s HBO peaked, and people loved it. These shows on HBO were a huge part of the meteoric rise. Shows like The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Entourage, The Wire... To name a few right so let's talk about the sopranos for a second always been a tv show on my list never seen it before but it's one of those shows that talks about the mob but it does it in a really unique perspective uh one of the things it has a similarity to friends is that it actually took stars who were like relatively no ones to launching their careers into like epic stardom everyone on the sopranos has had a really successful acting career because that show was so popular It brought mental health and therapy sessions to the forefront with the main character, you know, going to the psychiatrist's office uh, after you know having a bad relationship with his mom and whatnot, and being in the mob. And it was just like complicated, sort of emotional thing of sorts. And brought in violence and the mob. And people loved it. People, I mean, I bet that HBO exec was like, okay, good. The Godfather has had tremendous success in the nineties. The Goodfellas was such a popular movie. Scarface. All the like mob movies are so popular. Why don't we make a mob TV show? And obviously, it blew up. Um, and HBO took a major, and the thing is like the, the main advantage HBO had was that other cable networks didn't is that they could do whatever the fuck they wanted. They were premium channels. They could up the sex. They could up the violence. Like I said, and so they, and up the language. And so they were able to do this and HBO took major advantage of it and they developed a more mature audience. And as a result, their ratings took off and cable network ratings went down because they were trying to figure out what the cable network was trying to figure out what to do after friends because friends was ending in the early 2000s. And HBO was like on its rise. Cause they were like, we can do whatever the hell we want. And we're just going to up the extremities. So there you go. And the wire was another one of those shows besides the Sopranos that did really well in regards to like serious TV. Um, because it was, you know, it, it, the wire is really interesting because it t- was an extreme drama that took place in Baltimore and really dis- like discussed the different institutions of Baltimore, by digging into politics politics and law enforcement and the ways they border each other, touching on a lot of issues. It's one of the more woke TV shows, I would say. Um, and when the show was on the air, it actually wasn't super popular. It was overshadowed by a lot of the other shows, e.g. Friends, The Sopranos that I've talked about on this during this period of time. But critically, it's viewed today as one of the greatest shows of all time. A lot of people enjoy the show. I actually have not gone back and watched it. Another one on my list. A lot of my one of my good friends loves the show. Loves the show. Those of you that have listened since the Essential Podcast, Essential Question Podcast, Isaiah, Isaiah loves the Wire. It's his favorite. It was on his list too. He's like, I think it was number. I think it's his number one favorite show of all time. Anyway, the show on my list. It's one of the dramas that gets serious credit for advancing that genre uh, on TV forward massively and. It deserves all the credit in the world, but to a more comedic note, right? How did HBO advance the comedic genre? Because at this point you left friends. So HBO was like, huh, they have friends. They're talking about sex and dating. So what if we just like, they're, they're talking about sex and dating in like a PG 13 lens. What if we just make it NC 17 and just talk about sex and dating. So cue sex in the city, because that was another one of the shows in the early two thousands that had massive, massive, massive success. And, it was for totally different reasons besides the Sopranos. The Sopranos is like unique plot line. It was deep. It was like digging into all these multi different uh, levels of the mob and like a relationship between his son and his mother and all this stuff. Sex and the city was like, all right, let's keep it simple. Let's talk about girls and relationships and hooking up and women empowerment and bring it all together. And boom success right there. Samantha Jones is like Samantha Jones is known as one of the most iconic characters on TV. First free spirited playboy sort of character within a female. And that was, like, that was a character that, like, no one had seen on TV before. They were like, what? That exists? Like, you could do that? You could do that, bro? Okay. And so the narrative changed. And it, like, it touched on a lot of issues for women within society. And, like, how, like, women are stigmatized for sleeping with people and all of these things. And it's Sex in the City it was, like, a very reformed version of the sitcom. It was more extreme. It was more... Um, they up the sexual factors of the show and all of these things. And as a result of it being on HBO, they could take the sex scenes and put sex scenes in the show and take the show as far as they wanted. And that was what they did. And so sex in the city starts to have major success and everybody's all over sex in the city. And they're like, huh, this is really attracting the female audience. How do we get the male audience? Cue Mark Wahlberg and entourage. Because Entourage is essentially the male Sex in the City. And it's to show men the young Playboy life of LA, right? It's about Vinny Chase, all this. Personally, one of my favorite shows ever. I really love Entourage. Sex in the City is good. It's just not my type. I guess Entourage is more built for guys. So it makes sense why I like it. It's one of my favorite shows. I don't think Entourage is a particularly deep show. I'm not here to say that there's like some deepness to Entourage. It's not deep. It's with a lot of, it's got some substantive content, but it's not like. But for the most part, it's a fun, it's fun, flashy, and it's a good time. And that's why people watch the show is it's funny, it's extreme. They they go to they go a little too far sometimes, but they reel it in, and then they're like right at the line, and then they like back up. And it shines the way it. I think what Entourage does really well is that it shines a lot of light on the way people are treated within Hollywood, and I think that's where a lot of their substantive content came from because back in the day, people were not treated well in Hollywood. And the industry was pretty fucked up. And so shout out to Mark Wahlberg for really pointing out some of those uh, some of those flaws in the way that people are treated. And Ari Gold should be known as one of the more iconic characters. He's up there with Samantha Jones, I would say, uh, in this HBO era, being one of the more uh, iconic characters at the time. It was also made by Mark Wahlberg, if I hadn't repeated it. But he basically took the formula sex in the city, made it for guys, and it did successfully well. It did really, really well through the early 2000s, the mid 2000s. Did fantastic. And so HBO is taking off. They have Sex and the City. They have Entourage. They have The Sopranos. They have um, The Wire. All of these shows are doing so, 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 so well. So well. And cable network is struggling because because Friends is done, right? Friends ends in 2004. People are like, okay, what's next? They're struggling to come up with another sitcom because HBO is losing all their viewers because they're doing the sitcom better because they can be more extreme with it. So NBC's sitting there and they're like, fuck, we have to do something different. So cue the mid-2000s and The Mockumentary. The Mockumentary is what saved Cable Network at this point. The Mockumentary and another sitcom I'm going to talk about because it's the post-Friends era of sitcom. How I Met The Mockumentary has the title of the mid-2000s. And I feel like we saw a new version of the comedy and drama start to develop on HBO and Cable was slowly dying. But in 2004, Friends leaves and they have to figure out a new way to do something. So cue The Office, right? So The Office was a show that took place in Britain. Uh, it, the British version of The Office, some of you may have heard of it. It ran for two seasons, started Ricky Gervais. It did okay, but Britain didn't really like it. It was too dry and all that stuff. And it was canceled. But there was some guy in America, some television guy, dude who thought like, okay, The Office, like the, the concept is here. I like the concept. I like where they're going with this. So let me see what I can do to make this show my own. And so the showrunner here in America twisted a couple things, made it here and there, hired a new cast and basically stacked up the cast. He hired Steve Carell, who was fresh off Saturday Night Live, where he was a huge success and Anchorman, where again, like he was highly touted, brought in Rain Wilson, who was another big SNL star at the time, and just a bunch of SNL alum throughout the years to make like the sketch show of shorts with The Office, because it was a really ex- experimental show. They were doing the mockumentary style where they brought in characters for interviews, which was like unheard of. It was like, what the fuck are we doing here? And of course, as every experimental show does, it did not do well. The first season of The Office is known as the worst season of The Office, critically speaking, and it just did not take off. And the show looked like it was going to get taken off the air at the end of the, at the, end of the first season. But there was a warehouse basketball episode. And the warehouse basketball episode somehow was like this glimmer of hope that just, boom, turned the entire series around. Because after that episode, people were tapped the fuck into the show. And season two, season three, season four, and it just took off. It became, you know, Emmy wins. Characters were just amazing. The writing, the mockumentary style. Everyone was like, oh my God, The Office has changed the world. It became the huge, it became the biggest show. I, how do I personally feel about The Office? I think it's one of the more overrated shows on television, but that's just me. I've talked about it in the TikTok before. I'm not going to get into it now. But anyway, The Office is important because it's an important show to television history. It saved cable for a little bit. And the whole simple low-budget style to the show allowed it to succeed for, I believe, as long as it did. The mockumentary style is tremendously important. It pioneered this entire style of TV that we saw for really like 10, 15 years in this country. Every high school project became like The Office. It's just a fact. The mockumentary just became huge. But now this begs the question, right? I like I said I said The Office is one of the more overrated shows of all time. And I was someone who just didn't relate to the show at all. I thought the relationships I was just I what I like at a certain point I just wasn't invested in the show anymore. It's a solid show. It's a really good show. But is it really one of the greatest shows ever written of all time like everybody says? People have this thing marked real high in their greatest shows of all time. And my hot take is that the show that came after it that tried to kind of emulate it did a better job than The Office did itself. Parks and Recreation. I think it's a significantly better show on all fronts. I think it's got smarter writing. I think the actors on Parks actors and Actresses on, the, on Parks and Rec are fantastic. I love Amy Poehler. I love Rashida Jones. I love Aziz. Like, it's just, the, the cast worked better together, I feel like, on Parks and Rec. It took a little bit longer. Like, The Office definitely has really good episodes, but it's not consistent, and I feel like the show really... F- like the wheels start to fall off when Michael Scott leaves. And I think on Parks and Rec, it's it, it, they definitely, Parks and Rec had its low moments for sure, but I feel like Parks and Rec really trudged on. I thought the addition of Ben Wyatt was fantastic. Really loved Ben on Parks and Rec. I think Leslie and Ben are fantastic. I think just the, like Tom is really cool. Like I think there's just a bunch of like fi- fresh perspectives and faces on Parks and Rec that are just uh that's just it, it's different and i like that a lot better than uh a show like the office which i felt like really stagnated after a couple of seasons um but that's just me though I, a lot of people <laughs> a lot of people hate that take but the mockumentary was a, was the style through the mid 2010s and through the mid 2010s and, and that's because of the office the office deserves tremendous credit for that But that's the mockumentary and that was like the new comedic style and obviously The Office was all the rage but there was another show that was going on at this point which was absolutely taking the world by storm. didn't take the world by storm but it was a massively popular show and it saved sitcoms until it got cancelled eventually later on and that show is called How I Met Your Mother. And we all know this show because, well, it's frankly one of the more iconic shows of all time. And it's one of my favorite shows of all time. And I think the pure concept, and the thing is, I think the pure concept of How I Met Your Mother is better than Friends. I think the fact that you're already introducing this tension early on in season one of like, who the hell is this mother? Like, that is the question that everybody for nine years wanted to know. Who the fuck is the mother? And that's why the television, the finale of How I Met Your Mother is actually one of the more highly viewed finales that was viewed live of all time. It was, it was even in 2013 when it came out, it was really highly viewed anyway. Um, yes. How I Met Your Mother has, I feel like How I Met Your Mother is like that perfect bridge sitcom. It's this really good sitcom that bridges millennials and Gen Z. And it like really brings together everybody, like people from my age, people from my brother's age, who's six and a half years older than me. Like we all love this show and it's for different reasons, but I feel like it, it brings together the best of both generations is like the perfect bridge show. I, it was really, really, really good. Um, and it appeals to absolutely everyone. It does so in its really unique style, um, of show. It does drag towards the end. I'm not going to lie. Like the last season, there was a few, like I'm personally in the latter category of, I really I actually enjoyed the ending and it taught me it like, it was like this cool life lesson, but like there is no debate that this is one of the more influential sitcoms of all time. Say what you want about season nine. Season nine was hit or miss for sure. And I, I thought the ending was really good, but I am not the biggest fan of season nine as a whole, but the show is an incredibly influential show. And it's one of my favorite shows of all time. And that's just what I'm gonna what I'm going to say about How I Met Your Mother. The concept of the show introducing that tension early on made it an interesting watch for everybody and then there was the big bang theory right the show that ran from when i was in kindergarten all the way to 12th grade it was one of those shows that had a tremendous influence on sitcoms just because of the fact that it introduced nerd culture into the whole pop culture thing um you're surrounded like it was one of those weird shows that it was like surrounded by me my entire life like i literally was in kindergarten when the show premiered and i graduated high school when the show ended it's fucking unreal. Like, I was around that show my entire childhood. It went for 12 seasons. And the Big Bang Theory, like, I personally didn't like the Big Bang Theory all that much. I thought it had some highs. I thought it had very low lows. But I think the Big Bang Theory was one of those first shows that tried to show that nerds were cool. I thought it didn't do the best job of it, but it it tried. Um, <laughs> I don't particularly like Big Bang Theory all that much. But I think for identity's sake and for it being inclusive and, like, you know, bringing together all sorts of different people it did really well and it ran for years and years so people clearly like the show like i'm not i'm not even gonna hate like people like the show it did well it did mad numbers um so good for it uh the show is also credited for being one of the first like sciencey shows to show that science is really cool and it showed science in a different light and even though like the part of the sh- most of the show is making fun of the nerds that do the science like people claim that it showed science in a positive light but okay uh, it also appealed to like a whole new generation. My parents loved this show. I think a lot of parents really liked the big bang theory. Uh, not the kids so much like that grew up during that era. I wasn't like the biggest fan. I think I liked it for a little bit. Uh, and then like I watched it and like I thought about it and I was like, yeah, I'm not the biggest fan. I've also heard this like cast of characters is like complete assholes in real life from multiple people. I have it on really good authority. Uh, and like people who've worked at Warner Brothers, people who've interacted with this cast, like they do not like the Big Bang Theory cast. They're just not. They don't. They don't seem like the nicest people. It also created Sheldon Cooper, who like we can argue is like one of the more iconic characters in television show history. There hasn't really been a character like him that entered a network television show until him. So credit to Chuck Lorre for creating that character. I would say like out of this era of TV, like from the '90s to the mid 2000s. Um there's I, I like the the iconic list of characters from this like that anyone can name probably who's you know watched a decent amount of TV here in America is Sheldon, Barney, Rachel, Joey, Michael Scott, Jim, or sorry, Michael Scott, Jim, Dwight and Jerry Seinfeld. I feel like those are like the ones that people really recognize from from like the 90s to the mid 2000s. Um and yeah, those are like some of my favorite characters too, like very iconic and and uh they definitely carried tv for that 15 year period or 20 year period so shout out to all of them and listen i'm gonna talk about this these last couple i know we're at an hour and 33 so shout out to you guys for sticking with me as i discuss television but (laughs) the late 2000s were really interesting for drama and i feel like drama almost took a step back with the late 2000s because this is like where i felt like we were dealing with the current events of stuff people like we talked about the sitcom and the comedy and how it was like, you know, kind of going through its last hurrah with uh, the mockumentary and what time I Met Your Mother. And drama tried to go through some revamps. And I'm not the biggest fan of the revamps it went through. But I don't know if y'all know there was this event called 9-11 that happened in 2001. Yeah, like everybody's heard of it. Um, <laughs> and it shifted the way that we thought about the world. And so terrorism and like the FBI and the CIA became the most popular things because people didn't know what the fuck they were. Everyone was like, whoa, FBI, CIA, terrorism, kill everyone. Yeah. And so these shows kind of came to follow up those interests and those curiosities. And one of the main shows that came through this sort of like terrorism fascination was called 24, which is known to have like one of the great one season wonders in television show history. Uh, The fourth season of 24 is like critically acclaimed as like the greatest, one of the greatest seasons of all time of like a show. Um, But I think the concept of 24 is really cool. And what it does is it's one of these cool things where it's the first, it was one of the first ever shows to play with time because it had never been done on like a network television level where basically the entire season of the show takes place in 24 hours. So every episode of the season is like one hour long. And so it takes place within a 24 hour time period and, and they play with time really, really well. So it gives the show a lot of gripping elements to it. It has not much time passes, but also a lot of time does pass because you're watching the show over 24 weeks. And it's like this, you know, whole complicated thing. So it's interesting. But I felt like another show that did terror and really, you know, was popular was called Homeland. I think Homeland is really interesting because it's it, the, the plot of Homeland is lit, literally about the post 9-11 movement with terrorism and soldiers and all these current events that are going on. I think Homeland has a certain charm to it. I think the first couple of seasons are really solid. I think the thing, though, with all of these like current drama and sh- current event shows is they all run out of material after season two. They're like, oh, fuck. Like, we talked about all this shit. We don't know what to do now. So, like, what are we going to do? And so, for, like, I feel like seasons three and four of Homeland were basically Claire Danes just torturing the shit out of a bunch of terrorists. And it just, it feels so repetitive. And it's, like, borderline kind of, like, weirdly racist, kind of. Like, the way they look at Muslims in these shows aren't the best. Like, I'm not the biggest fan. Um, And Homeland is not one of those shows that, like, Homeland is one of those shows that received absolute critical acclaim and was like aired in the white house and shit like people love this show and i was just like i don't know i wasn't the biggest fan of it i just thought they just terrorized like a bunch of like they just like waterboarded a bunch of terrorists on tv and called it a show for two seasons and i just like wasn't a big fan of the show itself i didn't finish homeland but like i watched a few seasons it's thrilling for sure the first couple seasons are really really good but it really drags after a while and i feel like a lot of these shows like, they were really getting pro-America. Like, I, I get it, right? Like, you, you like, terrorists aren't good people. <laughs> but, like, these shows get really pro-America. And they point the villains as... Like, they make the villains so, so, so bad on TV. Like, they make them just egregiously bad. To the point where they just, like, don't recognize the outer consequences. And they just, like, waterboard torture them on TV for everyone to see. And just, like, be like, wow. Okay, I guess that's just, like, what brown people at play in Hollywood. LOL cool but like yeah the drama of these shows in this era was like really focused on terrorism in my opinion there were a lot of like foreign mission shows where they go to pakistan to like bomb another terrorist complex or like go to syria and kill someone or whatever but and i feel like drama really took a step back during the late 2000s During the late 2000s, in my opinion, but that all changed eventually because we started to see a lot more different types of drama. And that's because there was this time period called the streaming wars. And that's the kind of time period we're in now here in the 2010s and in the 2020s. Look, streaming wars are the biggest thing that's ever happened to television because there was this there was a lot of shows that hit a stagnate. Drama hit a stagnate by the 2010s. Like you had Homeland and all of these different like Zero Dark Thirty, that type of shit that was coming out. And like, yes, it's cool for a little bit. But like, dude, it gets really old really quickly. And people saw the success that HBO was having with all of these shows. And so Netflix was like, why don't we do something similar where we have creative autonomy over what we get to create? And so they created their own on-demand platform. And at first, a lot of the streaming platforms, as all of us know, because we've lived through this, were just movies and shows that were kind of repurposed from the past and like put on TV or put on this one platform where you could just scroll through and find whatever movie you wanted to watch. And it was kind of like past popular movies and TV, which is interesting because those shows, shows like Friends, shows like The Office, shows that had previously aired on cable and there was like no place to like access those shows from the past. These streaming platforms were giving you a way to be like, nah, you just click this button and you can watch all 10 seasons of the show and everybody fucking loved it. And it was great. And I loved it. And it allowed me to go like relive my glory days and watch all my favorite past TV shows. Um, And it just increased the popularity of a lot of shows too. You talk about New Girl. New Girl is one of the shows that greatly benefited from Netflix picking it up because it gained a whole new audience. Psych on Amazon Prime gained a huge audience as soon as it hit Amazon Prime and Netflix. When it was on Netflix back in the day, when Friends hit Netflix, there was this whole new generation of people that loved the show because they got to watch it for the first time. Um, shows like that that just refound. New fan bases and like it created new spin offs for them. Look at Fresh Prince. Fresh Prince hit hit HBO Max, they had a reunion show. Friends hit HBO Max, reunion show. Big Bang Theory is regaining popularity because there's a huge group of people that are watching it for the first time and love it. And so the thing is, that was happening. But at the same time, Netflix was like, why don't we create our own original content? So the, came the first show, House of Cards, which was the first show ever created by a streaming platform just by Netflix. It took a while for House of Cards to gain some steam, but at, once it gained success, it did. Obviously, House of Cards became canceled because of Kevin Spacey and all of that stuff. But Orange is the New Black also followed that up and that did really well. And all of a sudden, Netflix started to notice that their original content was capturing a lot of people's attention. And so all the other platforms started to come about and do the same thing. And then it turned into a huge war between Amazon, and Hulu, and all these different shows. And so a couple of things, like I said, have been realized. Number one is that old shows are gaining new fan bases and they're getting bigger and bigger. Shows like New Girl Friends, Hi, Met Your Mother, even Big Bang Theory, getting bigger. The, the Office gained a massive fan base when it hit Netflix. So many people watched the show that they've got this whole new group of younger kids who weren't even watching the show, weren't even alive when the fucking show was airing on TV, but as a result are like loving the show now. Then the second is that streaming companies creating their own content allows them tremendous flexibility and just allows them tremendous experimentation to do different things with TV shows. And so you could like test different experimental dramas out and try this new thing with TV and try this new thing with this violent show and try this new shit here and there. And so you have flexibility and as a result, like you have originals all over the place with all sorts of different genres and like high pay, high level actors and actresses who are signing these huge deals because these corporations have massive amounts of money to dump into these projects. So they're like throwing the bags at all these actors. Look at Apple TV. The morning show is literally the all-star game of television shows. They were like, Jennifer Aniston, here's two mil. Reese Witherspoon, 1.5 for you. Oh, you want Hasan Minhaj to guest star? One mil an episode. Boom, right? Like like that's the era we're in now it's like we're just throwing money and throwing the bag at creativity which is cool it's a great era to be in if you're a filmmaker if you're a television show writer all of these things so television is completely changed it's no longer controlled by the networks like it used to be uh because you have these independent companies that can just rise up and dominate the landscape like shows like friends will no longer exist you're never going to get a long 10 season show from now on shows like shows on amazon prime amazon originals Netflix originals, Apple TV originals have already pledged four seasons or bust. Or, or what is it? They said four to six seasons is their aim. And then after that, you're done. No longer gonna have longer longer shows. Longer shows I feel like don't exist. Grey's Anatomy is the last. <laughs> Grey's Anatomy is the last long show I feel like that'll ever exist. Um, but that's just my opinion. So that's the streaming wars. Okay, and I know we're at an hour and 41, so I'm gonna wrap this up real quick. So what now? What the hell is going to happen now with TV, right? And that's a fair question because we're in a weird era. Streaming wars are going on. There's all sorts of content everywhere. Everyone's like, "Oh my god, what's happening?" I'm rooting for the sitcom to be right revitalized personally. Uh, and I think it is. I think the world could just use a hell of a lot more laughter. We're way too serious. Like we're just watching people get murked on Game of Thrones and like we just love our drama and like Euphoria just makes us like want to like, you know, cry in our rooms for 4 hours. Um, and I get that. And serious shows are so fucking good. <laughs> like, the, in this day and age, the drama is really, really good because these streaming platforms can try different stuff, which is dope. And I love that. But I don't, I want to see another sitcom. I want to see like another comedy show because that's just the type of person I am. I enjoy those types of shows. But I don't think we're going to see any sitcom reach like 10 seasons, like A Modern Family of Friends, How I Met Your Mother, all that. Um, and, The long shows aren't in style. But I also think the traditional sitcom has a place in television. But I'm starting to feel like it's not going to be the main main show that everybody talks about, right? Friends, if it was released in 2022, I don't think would be the number one attraction on television. I think there would be other shows that would be ahead of it. Um, And so I feel like the sitcom has a place. It's just a secondary place right now. And a show like Ted Lasso is where I feel like the sitcom is headed. It's a show that has a lot of comedy and it's a lot of fun and people laugh and they smile and they you know, have a great time watching the show. But it's also incredibly deep and introspective and talks about a lot of things that make you think. And I, I think the shows like that that strike the balance are what is the future of television shows that find that little bit of introspection, but also can tap into that comedic side as well. And as a result, I mean, with the, with this, I think, I feel like we're seeing an influx of drama. I feel like a lot of people really like the dramatic stories and they're looking for these original stories, all these TV show writers. And so as a result, you're seeing people really dig into like niche things because everything feels like it's been done now. So you're seeing people dig into like these super niche categories and they're developing like these really niche fan bases. And that's really cool to see. I love to see it because for a while drama was just terrorism. Like (laughs) we're forgetting 10, 15 years ago, drama was like, There was a movie called Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, where they just like literally the movie was about Somali pirates taking over Captain Phillips. And it was like this. Oh, my God. Like, it's a good movie, but it's just like that was where drama was. It was literally just terrorists hijacking Americans, Americans finding way to defeat terrorists. That was the show. Those were the shows that were out 10 years ago. And that was what was considered a drama. And then you had Game of Thrones and you had all these super creative shows that came out. And I mean, now now drama is this whole nuanced category. But where are we heading? Where are we heading? I think we're headed towards more shows like Ted Lasso. I think we're headed towards more shows that strike a balance. Um, I think we're past the sitcom, unfortunately. I think the traditional sitcoms like Friends are most likely going to die out very soon, but they'll still remain vitalized in our hearts because they'll just be on streaming platforms. So it gives old shows the opportunity to live on while at the same time developing new original content. And I feel like that's where we are headed. And that's it for this show, hour and 45 minutes. I just want to thank you guys so, so much for allowing me the opportunity to speak about TV for an hour and 45 minutes. I doubt very many of you are going to actually listen to the whole thing, but if you made it this far, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate every single one of you. Like and subscribe to the show. If you guys enjoyed it, if you guys like my stuff, follow me on social media at The Chingabi Show on all platforms, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, all of that shit. Uh, yeah, I love talking about TV, as you can tell, so I can go on about it for hours and hours and hours. Um, I'll cut it up and make this thing into TikToks. What else do I have to say? I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Uh, this is new Chingabi coming to you live from my parents' house. I'm going to sign out for now from the South Bay. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. I hope you guys have a fantastic day, night, evening, whenever you're listening to this. And uh, yeah, I'll see you next time for another episode of The Chingabi Show. All right, guys. Take care. Peace.